Please forgive me. I forgot to hit record, but I just missed her introduction. Please welcome Elizabeth P. There's a big difference for me it's like before and after. So um, I came into um, SLAA 16 years ago. It was 16 years in August um, 2004. And um, the, my, my first, my second first meeting, it was my second first meeting. <laughs> so my second first meeting was the day after um, my qualifier raped me and, um, it was August 4th, 2008. And he was knocking on the door, uh, knocking on my window of my apartment. And, um, I didn't answer. I didn't respond to it. It was like three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. So, um, I didn't respond. And so my phone started buzzing. And I just picked it up and said, what? And he said, can I come in? And I said, no. And I hung up. He calls me right back. He said, I just need to pee. Would you let me come in and pee? If you don't, I'm going to pee out here um, right outside your apartment window. And I'm like thinking, oh, God, it's in the parking lot. So, long story short, I let him in. Um, he was really drunk. And I'd already been sober from drugs and alcohol for a little bit. Uh, four years and so um, I really didn't want him drinking and driving because that's how I got sober from drugs and alcohol and I'll tell you that story in a minute but um, so I said all right you can sleep here and um, I went into my bedroom and I put one knee on the bed and then reached across to grab my pillow and he was behind me and he pushed me down and flipped me over and we started fighting and wrestled and um he got my clothes off and um i was saying no the whole time but very quietly because my daughter was in the next room and um he didn't hear me and didn't listen and he raped me and um he finally had an orgasm and fell asleep on top of me and i was just laying there crying um, I pushed him off of me and finally fell asleep and I woke up in the morning and um, he left. I took a shower and I went to the Saturday morning um, women's law meeting at St. John's, which saved my life. It's a huge meeting. Um, I don't know. At one point, we probably had 40, 50 women there. Um, so I got a chip. And I um, got a, I, I found a sponsor. I called someone that weekend and asked somebody to sponsor me. And Monday, that, that was Saturday. That was Friday night when he came. So Saturday I went. Sunday he called me. And this is the most striking part of this whole, for me, the rape story was that so I had bruises like on my thighs and my upper arms from him holding me down and he called me on Sunday and I you know it's just like I can't believe that you're calling me and he was like oblivious I think he was in a blackout and he didn't really know what happened um and I was like I'm not doing this anymore we're done now we had gone years of this you guys years back and forth, back and forth. I don't want to see you again. Go away, come back. 
you know, just years of this in and out, back and forth, back and forth. And um, he said, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. Maybe someday you will get what you want from me. And my heart leapt and I can still feel it. This, you know, 14, 16 years later, I can still feel it. I went, and like, maybe someday I will, maybe. And um, my next thought after that was, this is how fucking broken I am. Here I am sitting here with these bruises and just battered from what happened last night. And yet I'm still, oh, oh, maybe he, you know. And that dichotomy, that, that paradox, that here to here just was so apparent, so evident to me that I knew like that was it. That, that was, you know, that was my, my bottom line. That was it. And, um, so I started working a really hard program. Um, it, that's not the last time I saw him. I worked with him and, um, so I saw him a lot at work and I had to learn, I had to learn about the glue that held us together. What was this thing, this addictive glue that held us? Because I knew this was not good for me, but I couldn't extricate myself from him. Now I got sober from drugs and alcohol four years. I don't even know how long it was, but it was uh, 1999. I got sober from drugs and alcohol. And um, I immediately started the relationship with him. And so that was like, what, five, six years earlier. And I immediately shifted. I I got rid of drugs and alcohol and put qualifier in place. And um, I used that, you know, I used that addiction, that addictive relationship to replace the chemicals. And um, getting rid of the drugs and alcohol, I was like, okay. I mean, I did something awful. I ran an 18-wheeler with some man I picked up in a bar in my car. He was lifted away, and I was handcuffed and went to jail. It was easy for me to put down the drugs and alcohol. I was just trying to stay alive. And then I went into this relationship, and four or five years, six years later, however long it was, I, it was so challenging to extricate myself from this relationship. Um, my girlfriend told me, she would tell me this all the time, you look like a deer in the headlights when you stand in front of your desk. So a friend I worked with. And um, I would just be like, oh, ha, 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 that's so funny. And um, I finally started realizing that there's something to this. So he came to stand in front of me and I was like, what is it? I just started like really going deep inside of me. What, what am I doing that makes this electricity between us? And I realized it was me. I was thinking about him. I was, so he's standing in front of me and I'm going like, I don't want him to leave. What can I do to make him not leave? And I'm not even conscious of these thoughts, but I can hear them. You know, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do this, maybe if I lick my lips, maybe if I look at his bit deeper into his eyes, maybe if I sit down and separate my legs a little bit, maybe if I cross my legs, maybe if I do, you know, anything to get him to stay there. I just did not want him to leave. And 
I realized like I didn't have any control over it. That was my powerlessness is when he was there, my thoughts created energy that just created this toxic bond between us, this electricity, this energy. So what I did is when he would come and stand in front of my desk, I started getting up and leaving. And um, the first time I did it, I went into my girlfriend, the same friend's cubicle, and I stood there sobbing. It felt so wrong and so bad to do that. But I knew that was the only way that I was going to create space between him and me, where I could get into this concept of no contact. And I don't even know, I think it was maybe two or three times I did that. And it, every time I did it, just it would like break it. It broke the energy. When I went back to my desk five or 10 minutes later, I had to fight everything inside of me to not text him or email him. I'm sorry, I'm doing this thing. You know, I really need to do this thing because, you know, explain it. You guys all know, you guys have all done this stuff. And I just didn't. And I was just reminding myself, like, if I sit with this, if I sit with it long enough, I'll, I'll feel better. And I did. It went away. And I stopped having that longing to explain myself and having that longing to you know, reach out to him again. And it helped me realize, like, at night, um, that was my, my, the hardest time for me was at night. And I would realize like if I could um, wake up in the, or if I was thinking about reaching out to him or wanting to reach out in some way, wanting to act out, I would just ask myself, will I feel better in the morning if I don't reach out or if I do? And every time it was do not. And there was times, I mean, you guys have heard this, but I'm literally laying on the floor in the fetal position, crying holding my Bible because I would just like read it and read it and read it, read it out loud until it went away. But eventually it passed. The feeling would pass or I would fall asleep and then I would wake up in the morning going, thank you, God, that I did not act out. Thank you, God, that I did not reach out to him last night. Um, I mean, I could spend the whole 45, 50 minutes, I could spend the next 10 hours telling you all of the stories about how that came about, how hard it was, all the things that I did. One of the things that I did um, to continue to, to not act out was I had this little index card and I wrote all of these Psalms on it because they comforted me. And when I, because I realized like when I'm in that space, when I, when the thought comes, call him, text him, only he will do, you know, you need to reach out. When that happened, I was the deer in the headlights. I could not, I did not know. I needed, I needed a mantra. I needed an automatic action. And so I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I, I got that card in my purse. I'm going to pull that card out. And I would just read them. And I would sit in my car, sit in the, I, I remember being in HEB on 18th street and just reading that card over and over and over again. And it passed. The, the, the desire to act out, the, the impulse, the, the compulsion to call, text, reach out in some way passed. So I taught myself how to like, you know, get through that. And there was a myriad of ways that I've used. And those are just, you know, a couple of them. It feels like it was 
you know, um, one of the women that came on said it's cold and dark and I didn't want to go out. And it felt like that's the period of my life. That's what that was, is it was cold and dark. And I don't even know how long it took. Um, and eventually though, I started getting, I started getting space. One of the things that I did is when I had that, that compulsion, when it was like, you know, I, I, I was training to run a marathon. I wanted to run a marathon. It's running around Memorial, which is a park. It's three miles. And I, he was, you know, he had space in my head. He had fucking free rent in my head. And I would go, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, God, keep me clean and sober. That's my mantra. So I would run and go, God, keep me clean and sober. God, keep me clean and sober. You know, trotting around this <laughs> memorial three miles. And then he would be gone. But then all of a sudden, I'm running, running, running. There he is again. Like two minutes. I went to my therapist. I was like, I'm fucking crazy. You need to do a lobotomy or something. Make it stop. And she just encouraged me, you know, keep doing it. Keep replacing the thoughts of him with the clean and sober. Keep replacing the compulsive thoughts with the mantra, and it will change. Did not happen overnight, you guys. It's a process. But eventually, what I wanted is I wanted, like, this, I wanted to wake up the next morning and go like, oh, I've had a whole day where I didn't think about him. And then I took that, okay, so like I do, I want a whole day, I want a week, I want a month. But what if I could just have an hour? What if I could just have a half a day? What if I could just have a work day? And I, I, I backed it up like that, you guys. I just went back to an hour and eventually I had an hour. And then I had a half a day and then I had a whole day. And I just focused on that. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what I wanted in a man. I didn't know what I wanted in a partner. All I knew is that I didn't, I wanted him out of my head. And doing it that way for me worked. And eventually he was out of my head. And I had the sobriety that I wanted. I had the clarity. I had, it was, you know, I had that peace. And um, I started once I got some of that, I started from the very beginning. When somebody asked me to do something in SLA, I did it. Somebody asked me a chair meeting, I did it. Everything somebody asked me to do, I said yes. Every single thing. Because it all worked. It all kept me from acting out. Everything that I did that was not calling him. I had so many of these journals. I shared this in <laughs> a meeting a few months ago. I had so many journals and I found all of them one day and I started opening up and reading them. Oh my God, it was disgusting. They were all the same. Where is he? Why didn't he say this to me today? Why didn't he come and see me? Why doesn't he love me? When will he love me? What can I do to make him love me? Oh my God, he stood there today, came and saw me today. He's going to call me today. He came over last night and then he's gone again. Where is he? Why won't he love me? Oh, years of it. Years of it. And I finally just burned them all through. I made a little fire, a little bonfire in my backyard because I didn't want my kids to find those. What if I die and my kids like find all these journals of these years of me saying the same thing? So um, I learned early on that service work keeps you sober. Service work keeps you sober. It does. I 100%. 
Um, I chaired meetings um, probably six to nine months around in my sobriety, working the steps and in program. I started sponsoring women. When somebody asked me, I said yes. And if they didn't call me, I called them because I needed them. I needed women to sponsor. I needed women to work with. I needed women that needed to hear something. I needed to listen to the, the problem and guide them through the solution because I needed it. That is still true today. I just took a call a couple of weeks ago from one of my sponsees and I found myself hearing, I heard myself saying to her over and over and over again, you, when you get clear about what you want and who you are, you will stop accepting these kinds of men. And I'm on a dating site and I'm finding myself doing that same thing. Like I'm attracting men that I don't want. And I'm not going out on dates with them and I'm not having sex with them and I'm not starting toxic, addictive relationships. But it's still, it was still the same thing. It was, I was doing this thing where I was like, not, I am, and I told you guys this a couple of weeks ago, I am vegan, I am sober, I don't eat sugar and I am a liberal. And I was not being upfront with those things when I would meet somebody. Because I was like thinking, well, if I tell them all of that, if they don't like any of those things, then they won't like me. Yeah, <laughs> because it's not a fit. It doesn't work. And so when I was telling my sponsee this, I was like, okay. And I went in and I changed my profile. I am vegan. I am sober. I do not eat sugar. And I vote left. And... <laughs> And it was like so freeing to be able to do that. So some of the other things I did to keep sober, um, I I took over. Somebody started and along this a long time ago. Girls Gone Wild in Recovery here in Houston, and um, it was we met on Friday nights. When I first started, you guys, there was only four women's meetings a week in Houston. That's it. No co-ed meetings. And in fact, I started the first co-ed meeting. It was the Tuesday night with a couple other women because we really wanted to know, like, what do sober men sound like? What do men in recovery, what are they like? Because we only knew women. It was safe. It felt really good. But it was not necessarily um, the only thing that we needed for our recovery. So um I really wanted to um, have more meetings as well. I really wanted to be able to um, go to a meeting every night. That was my goal, was to have an SLAA meeting every night. So we started a whole bunch of meetings. Um, but this Girls Gone Wild in Recovery, on Friday nights we would meet, and it was totally social. It was not a meeting. Um, we would meet somewhere, and I would send out an email Hey, we're going to do this. And sometimes just one or two women showed up. There was, you know, at least three times I remember it was my daughter, me and my daughter and one other woman in sloth. And sometimes it was like you know, 20 of us. And we just did all these different things. We had um, poker night at my house. and We played poker and drank diet root beer. We did a Halloween night at my house. And some of us were watching the Ghost of Mrs. Mr. Chicken and the, the other half of them were in my bedroom doing this Bloody Mary seance thing. And they're in there screaming and like they called it 
<laughs> spirits and levitating all that stuff just like you know like girls in junior high or high school like a slumber party like that that's what it sounded like and that's what it felt like and I missed all of that stuff as a teenager because I started smoking pot and I had a boyfriend and had sex at, I started all of that at the age of 14 I was a baby um, and so I missed a lot of that bonding and camaraderie you get in high school or in junior high school with other girls because I was worried about like hanging out with my boyfriend and smoking pot and having sex and drinking and all of that stuff um what else did I do to get me sober um I I started um working an inner group um I chaired inner group for I I joined for a year and then I chaired inner group for three years and um, that was so rewarding for me. Intergroup and doing that chairing and being in that service, I really got to be um, intentional about what I wanted to give to SLAW, what I wanted the growth to be like. And I focused on um, building our financial coffers. And, um, you know, we did, we had fundraisers and um, I got, you know, the, the bank account to over $10,000 so that we could, if we wanted to send, you know, eight people to the ABM, we could. Um, I sponsored anybody that asked me. I, if somebody asked me, I figure if they go to the trouble to ask me, then I said yes. Um, and every time I sponsored somebody, it helped me way more then it helped them because working with another woman, sponsoring another woman, um, I have to listen to her and listening is a huge benefit of sobriety is learning to listen, to really listen, to be quiet and listen, to not be in my head. Like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? But just to listen to, you know, try to read what's really going on with the other person. And then, give my experience strength and hope and identify where the toxicity and where the addict is. And I mean, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I am exceptional at that because I've sponsored so many women and because I was so fucked up in the, when I got here and I can recognize so many of that addictive behavior and tendencies and escapism. I've worked an AA program, SLA, OA, and DA. So, you know, they're all the same. It's all the same stuff. It's the, de the desire to not deal with what is going on right now. So, um, we are like, I got like 10 minutes left. And I want to talk to you about what my life is like now. Um, so in sobriety, I created um, the largest women's nonprofit group in Houston. Um, I know somebody Houston, and I what I wanted to do there was to create a group, like a, the, the fellowship and the camaraderie and the connections in a 12-step group for mainstream women, women who don't have addictions. And it was just that simple. I just really wanted the women of Houston to be able to have what we have here. Um, so it was um, 
uh, we started on Facebook. We had um, in-person meetings. We'd have a speaker. Somebody would talk about whatever, and then we would fellowship. I I have the best social group of friends that anybody could ever ask for. And I've learned, like, you know what? I'm an addict. I like to get high. I still do. What makes me high? This. This feeds my addiction. For me to be able to sit here and tell all of you, this is how fucked up I was. This is all the fucked up stuff I did. And my life is so much better now. Um, being able to recognize my own patterns, my own um, part in addiction. I mean, the fourth step, like going through and figuring out my part. Yeah, I did that. I did that thoroughly many, many times. And I was sick of my own self. Where was I self-seeking, dishonest, selfish, and fearful? Yeah. it's And now I can do that in my head. I can go like, okay, wait a minute. What's going on here? Because what's my part? Where am I fearful, self-seeking, dishonest, and selfish? And I can stop whatever it is that I am doing and not look at the other person and go like, well, you need to, I have three adult children. I have two grandchildren and two step grandchildren. And I have no behavior that I would not openly let any one of them see. And I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything that I'm afraid for anybody to see. And that feels really good. I've, you know, I don't have shame about my life or my behavior. And that was not true <laughs> at all prior to this. Um, let's see. I want to read my notes to make sure I stay on there. Relationships with family. Oh, well, this podcast, this is such a gift to be able to do. And what I've learned from it and what I've been able to our reach, you know, we, on this call tonight, I know Claire's from um, England, and we have a worldwide reach, and I couldn't have done that prior, I didn't even, you know, it's just such a selfless thing, and I will admit to you, it is like very ego-centric to realize that we do have this incredible reach, and that the Sober Sisters podcast has pretty good analytics and that we do have a you know we have pretty good listenership and but the thing is is that that none of that would have happened if I couldn't figure out how to shut the fuck up and do what somebody else told me to do and oh my god I did not want to at all I remember early on and I was like, well, he just keeps coming over. He just comes over. And so one of the, if any of you guys are from Houston, you know, PA, she said, move. <laughs> I was like, I am not going to pack up my house and move because of him. Yeah, I did. I did. I packed it up and I moved so that he didn't know where I was. So that he couldn't find me. Because my sobriety and my peace of mind was worth more than, you know, whatever that cost or that labor or that, you know, whatever. Um, way, way back then, our first encounter, 
he invited me to go to his car and um, it was in the middle of the summer in Houston, downtown Houston. And we walked up to his car and I followed him and I was wearing these blue tights. I know exactly what I was wearing, dark blue tights, a skirt and a long sleeve um, t-shirt. And it was one of those parking garages that go like this. And he's on the top floor and I'm following him, walking, 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 walk, following him. We get up there and he walks up to this beat up little blue Hyundai. And he opens up the door and it goes, and I get in and it's all like there's crap everywhere in this car. And I'm like thinking inside my head, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing here? And, um, but I quickly put that away because the only thing that I could really focus on at that time was the heady, intoxicating feeling that I had of having him pay attention to me like that. And I didn't want it to stop. And I was willing to do anything so that it didn't stop. And I got in the car and I sat there and we're just kind of chit-chatting and he puts his hand um, down my tights and it was not comfortable. It did not feel good. I was not having a good time doing this at all. But I knew I did not want that to stop. What the hell? That just sounds so, oh my God, listening to myself say it. So what I did is I took his hand out and I performed oral sex on him. And when it was done, we got out of the car and he walked in front of me, not beside me, did not turn around and wait for me. He just left and walked in front of me all the way back to the building. And I remember like, like that shame and that humiliation, like, why is he doing that? Like, what? he's not even walking next to me. And, um... When we got back to the building, we were in the lobby at the same time because I kept like trying to get to it. This is so humiliating looking back at this. And we got on the elevator and I got off and he like just punched my ass. And I really like to focus on that story and remember it because I have not felt that way since I've been sober in SLAA. And I do not have any degrading, any man degrading me like that and won't because of my recovery and because of my own sponsor and my own therapist and all of you that have allowed me to be support to you, listen to Sober Sisters, let me be your sponsor. All of you, every single one of you, that is what helps me more than anything else is to be able to be a part of this fellowship. Thank you. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.